0: Uh, my name is Patrick I'm uh, definitely an alcoholic I belong in AA (laughs) and I'm glad I have AA and uh, AA is a great place to be AA saved my life I wouldn't be alive without it I'm pretty sure that so um, and this is a, a group that I my first visit but I've heard about it and read a little bit on the website and I think it's a great thing you know Bill Wilson said that atheists and agnostics widened the gateway to AA. And um, so um, everybody is welcome in AA. That's the beauty of AA. Um, I got sober in downtown San Francisco on Skid Row. So believe me, everybody was welcome in those meetings. It was like going to the emergency room at General Hospital. (laughs) That's what the A-meeting was like. <laughs> so um, there was, you know, um, anyway, the reason why I ended up there, it started out, uh, you know, I was born in Cavan, uh, here in Ireland, County Cavan. I grew up there. I started drinking at a young age. My grandmother used to rub it on my teeth. She used to rub the whiskey on my teeth. And I was. I always seemed to have a toothache, you know. Uh, they say in the big book, it says, you know, uh, I think that a team of uh, doctors work it, work it out. And they said that they figured out that alcoholics drink because they like the effect. <laughs> well, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> I got to tell them that. But um, yeah, they like the effect produced by alcohol. Isn't that a strange thing? But um, and I did, you know, I just like the effect as a child. I used to steal drinks, you know, out of the cabinet that was in, the, in, the, in one of the rooms in our house. There was a cabinet. My grandmother used to put her bottles of Harvey's Bristol cream. And then I'd, I used to go to the shop to cash her, her pension check and to the post office. And the way back, I'd always get her um, um, a bottle of Powers Irish whiskey. She liked her. She liked the little bottles, you know. She called her baby power, you know. And she drank for medicinal purposes. There was no alcoholics in the family, none, none. There was none in the whole area. Never heard of an alcoholic anywhere, growing up down there. There was some problem with the water. I think people had liver problems, but never heard anybody described as an alcoholic. (laughs) Poor fellow, he had a weak liver. (laughs) You know, he died of a, where did he die of? He died of a, no, he died of a weak liver. You know, so you'd hear stories like that. And you'd see people roaring drunk all over the place. And, uh, but there was no, um, you know, discussion of alcoholism that I ever heard in my immediate family. My mother and father weren't really drinkers, you know, which we dodged the bullet with that one, a young couple who met and fell in love and wanted to have a lot of children. They had 11 of us and they devoted their lives to us. So, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. So. Um, there was there was definitely no childhood trauma to speak of, which I'm lucky because um, I've sponsored a lot of guys and I understand how trauma adds many more layers. Getting back into it, growing up, um, and and uh, enjoying the effects produced by alcohol, and I, you know it started getting me in trouble at a young age, you know, because when we were probably around twelve or thirteen myself and a few of the local lads, we would pool our money and we'd buy a lot of hard cider at school you know and um we'd get drunk basically and uh i would get in trouble and i started getting in trouble with teachers over stuff like that and i had some problems at school we'd moved to dublin when i was 15. i stopped going to school at 15 i took a job in a factory in dublin there as an apprentice and Then I just um, was really, really hated Dublin. You know, when you come up from the country as a culture into the city, believe me, it's no place to be. So I I was dying to get out of there. And I I, I remember one night getting rip-roaring drunk. And that helped me make the decision to leave. And it seemed that I could use alcohol in that way. Alcohol will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. (laughs) You know, they say alcohol won't do anything to you if it doesn't do anything for you. And I would say that alcohol fueled my life in many ways at a very young age. So I left Ireland at 16, went to London on my own, and um, was very determined, always very determined, very, very self-willed. By the time I was 18, I owned my own home. I mean, I was just went there with nothing, you know, no education, no nothing. So... I only say that to show you how self-will can, you can be a ripper and drunk and full of self-will and be quite successful on the outside. But every night I drank myself to sleep, every night. And I remember when I was 17 years old, getting in trouble at a job that I was in. It was, uh, I had worked in the restaurant business. I was doing an apprenticeship actually, in sort of high-end restaurants. And, there was this restaurant we were living in upstairs. And I remember one night getting pissed off with the owner and there was a big banquet room and it had a piano, a grand piano and this big chandelier and, and middle of the night, roaring drunk, smashing the chandelier with a broomstick all over the piano and grinding it into the top of the piano. And I was gonna leave, that was, I was gonna walk out, but I fell asleep. And uh, in the morning, of course, the owner discovered what I had done and he brought me in the office. And I would like to set it was 17. And he said, you're a 17 year old alcoholic. And he actually didn't fire me, believe it or not. And um, he was really a good guy. I could never find him to make amends. So I made amends in a different way, but um you know so i could have qualified for aa back then in my teenage years and i've met guys over the years who've gone into aa in their teenage years <laughs> and uh, and and are still sober but you know i was very um very self-willed like i said there was no way i was going to admit i had a problem with anything and so um it took me you know going through a lot of um you know, I was always a worker, really work hard, if anything, a workaholic, always striving to get ahead and but it always seems seemed to be to be one step forward, two steps back, you know, and it was always to do with alcohol and then drugs, and then finally got heavily into drugs, you know, and especially cocaine and um and by this time, you know, I was in my twenties, and I was doing really well on the professional end and 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 everything. I had my own business and uh but I was just you know i I was out of control with alcohol and drugs for sure i mean i i i I'd gotten into speed as a teenager, and I used to say well I, I it helped me to keep working, you know I never got drunk when I was on speed. <laughs> because you drink all day, all night. And I remember when I came into AA, guys were going, do you want a coffee? I said, I don't drink coffee. I mean, I never drank coffee up until that point. Who needs coffee if you got speed? So, but um, the the thing is that I never thought I would get so heavily into cocaine. I, I sort of did. And then I was earning quite good money. So I lost all basically. And I left London in 1986, went to New York to get away from drugs. <laughs> so not really, you know, a great, the greatest move. Um, I'd been going back and forth to the States since the 70s and I'd always wanted to live there in any case, but I ended up in New York, 86. By 1988, I was living in Los Angeles and I had a sleeping bag and I lived in a sleeping bag down off of Main Street, if any of you know LA, Skid Row, main street (laughs) that's, um, and I used to sleep in a little park across the street from the Amtrak station. And I'd go clean up and I'd go to work and somehow, you know, if we, we are very resourceful, we'll always find the money always. And by then I was heavily into crack cocaine and that was 1988. And so. I always say that if i could um do crack cocaine like a normal person, I'd still be doing it but i'm i i, I crack cocaine was my downfall and um so um i came into somehow through a i mean it's a i don't want to get into the whole rigmarole of the drunkologue too much but but you can see where it got me um and um And somehow, then I went up to San Francisco. I remember getting a Greyhound bus up to San Francisco. I knew some people up there. I knew the guy who was a drug dealer and a cocaine dealer. And he let me stay on his couch. And um, I would try to go out and work. And part of my job was listening to him. (laughs) If If I just sit and listen to him for all night long, you know chat talking and his girlfriend um then i could live there (laughs) basically and give him any money i had you know just go out and get some money wherever you can get it and give us your money and and then jack would just talk he was a nice guy but uh, you know he would just talk all night long and sharon's girlfriend she worked in the hospital at uc hospital and she used to work in the office but she was in charge of buying things and so she would order extra. <laughs> so the, there was like a bathroom full of anything. You wanted uppers, downers, inners, outers, you name it. And then Jack with the Coke and speed that he dealt and, and weed. So it was just like a smorgasbord. board. I could have whatever I wanted. And, and somehow, somehow I hit bottom. I don't know what happened, but one day I'd been trying to stop. I tried everything in the ad infinitum list. And I couldn't stop, I couldn't. And so somehow one day I I, I just I put down a drink, I put down a beer and I walked out of the bar and I don't know what happened, but something happened. And, and I thought I never want to drink again, but I went for a week without a drink before I went to AA. And finally I realized, you know, I'd heard about AA. I, I knew a guy who got sober in AA and he set an example to me was another Irish guy and he told me about AA years before in London actually and he'd been sober and I couldn't believe that he got sober I'd seen him under the arches at Waterloo station and met Strinker and I saw him I actually worked for him and um, he became my employer he got sober and he was a really good guy and I remember him telling me about AA and trying to 12-step me but I wasn't ready but it's, you know, you never know when you're 12-step in somebody it could take years, but it's saying, but it may be planted a seed And so I thought if I ever got desperate enough, I'd go to AA. And so I remember one Saturday night, I'd gone to an AA meeting in San Francisco. And the first meeting of AA went, that was in April, 1989. And I went in and uh, there was maybe a dozen people eight o'clock on a Saturday. And, um, it was not untypical of a, a meeting in San Francisco at the time, and there's many of them still the same way. There was a drunk guy, drunk out of his mind, sitting next to me, and he was disruptive and disrupting the meeting. And um, the meeting ended early. And the young chap who was secretary, a nice guy, he kind of lost control of it a bit, and um, so just decided to end it. And uh, came over to me because I put up my hand saying I was brand new, and. Um, he said, man, you know, you put up your hand, you were a newcomer, I'm so sorry, you know. And I said, well, when's the next one, you know. <laughs> it didn't, you know, I. the fact that it didn't throw him out kind of impressed me. And the fact that some woman was hugging him outside and he was crying on her shoulder and she was saying, it's okay, keep coming back. That kind of impressed me more than you know there being order in the meeting. <laughs> that would have probably turn me off. <laughs> you know, really organized meeting and they give me an Excel spreadsheet to fill in up you know an inventory. But no, it was it was just like that was where my head was at. And I do feel that if somebody's comes in brand new and desperate enough that it doesn't really matter what happens at the meeting. And if you know it'll be right, and if they're not ready, and it doesn't matter what happened in the meeting because it'll be wrong. So, you know, I don't see how good orderly meetings are necessarily a requirement. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I mean, it's nice to go to a good orderly meeting, but at least it's nice if there's a secretary and that the meeting opens. And there's sometimes readings that are nice to listen to and I feel at home, especially when I'm traveling on the road a lot and I'll go to an AM meeting and it's, it opens, there's a secretary, there's a coffee, there's, there's the, my favorite, the slogans on the wall. And, um, you know, so I feel kind of the sameness, but what happened, what people say at meetings has never bothered me too much, but, um, Um, you know um, I wasn't listening a lot in the beginning anyway but there was a lot of funny characters in San Francisco meetings Um, San Francisco meetings are very laissez-faire you know especially I lived downtown for that first year when I came in and um, one of the things was that they were very active in helping newcomers that's for sure the second meeting, I you know, the first meeting I went to, everybody's coming over because I'm new, and give me a numbers and um, and a, a schedule and where to go tomorrow night. So that was the Saturday, Sunday night. I went to a meeting called Friendly Circle Beginners on Sacramento Street and Ness Avenue, and um, that became a meeting that I went to for years. And um, the uh, I I I, I Couple of guys, Jerry from Dublin and Bill from Cornwall. They came up to me after the meeting and took me for coffee, and they proceeded to just, you know, that we talked for two hours or so, and they told me about their drinking and they were sharing crazy stories. And we'd sort of been around. All three of us had lived in London and, and New York and this and that, and so we we kind of had a lot in common and. I could I could relate to their drinking and what, what I was blown away by was the fact that they weren't drinking. That surprised me. That surprised me. That they weren't drinking and they seemed to be happy. They seemed to be having a good time. So they didn't tell me anything about a book. They didn't tell me anything about anything um, in terms of uh, uh, spirituality. <laughs> about anything you know we were just telling drinking stories actually and crazy stuff and it was fun and it was just like the fact that they were doing it and they weren't drinking is what impressed me and i thought well if they can do it then any fool can do it it's kind of like driving a car i used to think that when i was taking driving lessons working with this guy he was fucking so all over the place but he could drive a car really well and i thought okay well if he can do it i can do it anybody can do it and it's kind of like was with them when i saw that they don't drink well what is it that they do and they said you know um i remember there was a there was they used to read suggestions for beginners at that meeting one of them was if you go by bars on your way home normally um change your route i remember that was one of them and um And it stuck in my mind because I lived, you know, I didn't live in North Beach. But no matter what part of the city I was in, my way home was through North Beach. And because there were my favorite bars, four of my favorite bars were in North Beach. The Silvios, Spags, the Grant and Green, and the North Beach Saloon. I can still remember them (laughs) all. They stick in their mind, you know, and um, they and, and, and I would always end up in those bars and um, start in one and end up in all four every time. I, and, and so anyway, they said, change your route. And this was, you know, 1030 at night when we when we left the coffee shop and I was thinking about which way I'd walk home. And I was thinking about what the guy said in the meeting. If you normally walk by certain bars, change your route. And I, it, it was in the back of my mind, which way am I going? Because I was kind of like, I was kind of like in, but was I really in? And, and it dawned on me, you know, and I remember it saying, Jerry said, which way are you going? I said, I'm going down Venice Avenue straight home. And so I changed my route home. And I think I took the third step right there. I really do, you know, because you know, truly, I think the the steps are so simple. Um, there's nothing complicated in the in AA, you know. The steps as outlined are real simple. There has to be, there's something that happens, I think, in the individual, if they're ready, you know. Well, that's how, I, I can only speak for myself, but I've seen it in other guys too. But um, because the third step is aligning the will with, with the will of a, a higher power, or just a different way of doing things, everything, and not walking by bars, making that decision, it was a good decision. And it was, I really felt it too, that I didn't want to drink. And so then I went to a lot of meetings. And then the following night I met Jerry, we went to a meeting and they needed a coffee maker. And he said, Patch will do it. (laughs) I said, well, okay, fine, I'll do it. And so it was like that. It was very, it was very straightforward. Um, I could see that people were very active in the recovery. And I could see there was, you know, um, the no talk of, at that time, at least in AA, there was never, I never heard anybody introduce themselves, oh, my name is so-and-so, I have a sponsor, my sponsor's name's Frank, he's here, we both wear suit and tie when we go to, I mean, it, that was not San Francisco AA. That was definitely not San Francisco AA. That was, you know, I I, I hear it, it sort of, cr- noticed it on Zoom and and, and uh, visiting other cities, of course. But um, San Francisco AA, at that time, remember, that was 89, so you had the AIDS crisis. And a lot of the meetings downtown, there were a lot of gay community would be at the meetings. The meetings were a mix, you know, of everybody. and there was a lot, and And I think they, that that added a whole dimension that was really interesting it, it because these guys were dying you know and they were the they were the ones who were cheering us up they you know the gay community just added this level of humor and fun and lightness to the meetings even though the AIDS crisis was going on so that I, I kind of blew my mind that kind of you know, was something that was really interesting. And I think that San Francisco, I lo- still love San Francisco AA. And um, I, I, somebody told me there's, there's some atheist agnostic groups which go back a long way in San Francisco. I never got out, they were out in the avenues. That was like going out to the suburbs. So I was downtown, I like to be downtown. And there was 10, 12 meeting rooms I could walk to every day. And um, a lot of the meeting rooms, you know where the meeting room was because there'd be the the shopping carts outside, (laughs) you know. A lot of homeless people would go to the meetings just to get a cup of coffee. And there was something beautiful about San Francisco AA. There was a few people who became mentors to me. There's a guy called Frank. And Frank had been sober in San Francisco since 1946. And he was still knocking around the rooms, Frank Brennan, And, um, you know, Frank had something that was beyond, you know, so obvious, you know. They say that, you know, sometimes they say, you know, (laughs) if somebody's really spiritual, they don't know they are. You know, who's the most spiritual? The one who doesn't know it, you know. By their fruits you shall know them, and uh, Frank was definitely one of those guys because um, he led by example, and he he didn't talk about um, you know he sort of spoke in riddles it seemed <laughs> you know so it's hard to know where he stood but um, he did, he showed what he did because he founded the city detox center he founded a hotel for alcoholics called the Arlington still there in San Francisco for men in recovery. And um, he founded numerous halfway houses, uh, some for women, for single mothers in recovery. Frank was uh, just a, the Brendan houses, and um, won awards, you know, for altruistic work that he did. But very unassuming. So I learned a lot from people like him. How to live this life, and and and, or at least to attempt to in the best possible way, and. Um, and, you know, I continued in AA. I became very successful again, business-wise. In this, and I, and I was still going to meetings for so many years. And um, I remember getting up to... And I, I had various phases of AA. You know, the first 10 years, very gung-ho meetings all the time, a lot of commitments. And then got busy, had a family, two children, wife. It was very... Ambitious <laughs> and I got very distracted. It was very hard to keep up with everything. And um, like AA became something that was tick the box. Have I been to the meeting? Yes, I've been to the meeting. And um, I was, bit, and I go through phases, but, and then I get back into it thinking shit, this isn't working. I got to get a new sponsor, get some sponsors, get back on track again. And then finally, after 24 years, I um, had a nervous breakdown due to a lot of um, too much work, too much distraction, uh, trying to put kids through college. I mean, I bit off way more than I could chew. And, um, and I ended up first through like not sleeping and properly and uh, having panic attacks, I ended up on the emergency room with that and taking the medication I knew I shouldn't have taken. And sure enough, I ended up you know drinking because I didn't like the medication, and I thought I'll just self medicate you know and by then, my mind had completely gone, and I spent five years uh in a of a relapse it almost killed me, and i didn't i couldn't I was incapable of going back to a. I would go once in a while to a meeting and I couldn't register nothing registered and um I, I just um, couldn't sit still. And uh, it was true. there was a suicide attempt. I ended up in the psych ward for the first time. I mean, it got, it got really bad. And uh, so what happened was my family uh, and my first sponsee, Steven, um, sort of corralled me and they conned me into coming back to the house and uh, took me to a rehab henry olaf house in san francisco wonderful facility the oldest rehab in the city and the best deal in town they're about quarter the price of our most rehabs it's a really good rehab if anybody wants to know i can give you all the details but uh wonderful place and and uh it's over 60 years in the in the city right in the city and i ended up in there and it took me a few days to detox i was in bad shape you know, a lot of librium, and, um, but finally, when I came to, I was able to go into an AA meeting with the group, and I somehow felt completely at home again, and I threw in the towel. I really feel it. I just threw in the towel. I was not interested in anything except staying sober. That was my only interest, and it remains so, you know, and, um, and I got back into just doing exactly what I did, what I learned from Frank Brennan, what I learned from some of the great guys that were great mentors to me, some of my early sponsors. I got a sponsor again. I got into the steps. I got into sponsoring guys. And I got into doing all the stuff that I'd learned in that early San Francisco AA way of doing things. And, um, and truly, I feel that I've had... Um, you know the word spiritual it's not a religious program it's a spiritual program. well you know whatever but um that that's i live in la so the southern california it's like the uh, epicenter of the spiritual industrial complex <laughs> i mean it's just like spirituality is a word that gets thrown around oh it's very spiritual look at the chakra cleansing he did over the weekend and all this stuff but i i really feel that that I learned so much from just, you know, down and dirty AA and going to Alano clubs and AA meetings at the Salvation Army and places like that, where the true spirituality shows in how people are living their lives free of alcohol and drugs and some desperate and some on cloud nine you know and it's just that mix that you find it in in a room you can't find it anywhere you can't find it anywhere you go to a spiritual group for instance that might be buddhist and i've gone to these and it's just that you know i don't like any anything where they're all smiling at once i'm i'm not too sure but um but aa i just enjoy just the broad cross-section of humanity in the rooms and there's something beautiful about it and it brings the whole teaching in that big book to life you know Uh, Bill Wilson described it as a spiritual kindergarten (laughs) each man's um, theology each man has his own or, or, or what does he say each man's Theology has to be his own quest, his own affair. mind your own business. <laughs> I love the 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 my favorite way to work if somebody has a problem with the God thing and you know the steps are an issue. I would say work the the work the um the slogans, the slogans. I love the slogans. I used to put them up on the wall. I was running a meeting. I always think of them as live easy, but think first because they, they go in that order usually along the top <laughs> live and let live i mean boy you could just live your whole life on that one slogan you could live your whole life on the on the um what you call it the golden rule you know do unto others should happen do unto you live and let live i write out my um you know what what that means to me from time to time and I've uh, shown Spancy's true writing, if you don't want to write the step, well, write out what live and left live means. And uh, easy does it. and but for the grace of whatever, but for the grace. and um, um, but think, and then think, 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 and we turn it upside down. <laughs> but uh, that's a good one. We have to think. I mean, there's no way we can just stop thinking. <laughs> it's just not that ain't gonna happen. So it's just regular, you know, trying to do the right thing. The Right actions change turn into right thinking. That's what they say in AA. Right actions turn into right thinking. Not the other way around. Again, think your way into right action, get you act your way into right thinking. So that's the way I think of that one. And or think the drink through. And then first things first. Just simplify, simplify, simplify. That's what that one says to me. Keep it simple and remember the very first thing when I'm confused, okay, what's the next right thing to do? That's all I have to do. I don't have to do anything else. I'm confused, I don't know how to handle the situation. Okay, what's the next right thing to do? Call Mark or call Liam or call, somebody whose number i have and see how they're doing you know usually that helps but um you know or call uh, the sponsee or call a newcomer or call whoever you know call my sister see how she's doing you know so anything to get out of self right that's what we say and then hopefully we'll discover there is no self (laughs) that would be the the ultimate but um Anyway, um, I think that's enough on me, so I'll leave it at. The, I'm I'm back now. I came back in 2018, by the way, after that crazy relapse, and I've been pretty much, you know, I got some kind of a gift out of it. I did, and uh, it changed me in 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 a way that um, you know it's hard to. It's just the way I feel about things, or don't feel about things. (laughs) It's just, I do feel that that was a near death experience that um, changed a lot of my, my whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. Where did I read that? (laughs) Um, But um, in any case, um, I'm just, I love AA. I love the whole process of AA and the AA community, and I'm very grateful for it. So thanks.